Well, hello, and welcome back to the Zippy the Wonder Snail podcast. This is episode number two, and once again, I'm here with my co-commissar, Jason. Hey, Jason. Hey, Tim. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm ready to zip through more news and culture that matter to those who are listening to us today. I'm ready to do it with you. So I I had a realization as we were beginning today, and that's that I need to hold still. I, I have a chair I'm sitting here in that need some WD-40 desperately. It's very squeaky. Uh, and so, you know, they say the, the squeaky wheel gets oiled, but I'm not sure about the squeaky chair. Yeah, uh, I'm not either. I have known my fair share of squeaky chairs, uh, as has Captain Kirk, if you go back far enough. <laughs> yeah, there, there's lots of squeaky chairs out there and squeaky wheels, and we're going to hit several of those squeaky wheels today, starting with Academia. For those who follow us on Open for Business, they know our colleague Dennis Powell wrote last week about the College Bowl, which is an old television show I had never heard of until he wrote about it, that's apparently being revived. And it's kind of an interesting concept, the idea of having colleges come together. We see them come together to compete all the time, but come together and compete on academics rather than athletics mind-boggling thing to do with two academic institutions, I know, but apparently they actually did that for 20 years back in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, I read that in the piece, and I I seem to remember seeing old footage of that program. Uh, and I, th- I think it's a noble idea if we if we still have anything good to, to think about. Well, that that's the real crux of the problem, isn't it? Speaking of squeaky wheels and squeaky chairs, there are a lot of squeaky wheels in academia, and most of them don't necessarily instill a lot of confidence in the idea of this revived college bowl. I like what Dennis said in his piece. He said, I further wonder whether the philosophies, if we can call them that, of the universities and colleges today put all that much emphasis on students learning facts, history, critical thinking, and gaining knowledge and skills. There's a movement that holds that the most important part of college education is that no one's feelings get hurt. Ouch. I think think it's a relevant point. Um, And I also think, but even there, in agreeing with Dennis, uh, the kind of philosophical development which led to facts that could be disembodied from the context in which they were found um, is also part of the problem so and, and that would be also why like people like Alistair McIntyre and certain friends of ours that we share in common they don't like the phrase critical thinking because they're going to say, well, if you have, if you begin with a good philosophy, you don't, you don't critique your foundation so much as you critique things that are contrary to the foundation. So it'd be interesting to interact with that uh, on an ongoing basis, but I'm totally sympathetic because, you know, the other point that Dennis is trying to make is if, is if truth and falsehood is determined by feelings, then that's hedonism. So, and that's not going to help anybody. You know, you got to be able to, to, to discern the truth and accept it, 
even if it makes you feel bad about yourself or something. That's, a, I think, a real problem, and it makes me wonder exactly how this revived College Bowl coming out later this year is going to work, because while there are a lot of fine thinkers in academia, over the last few years, it really does feel like we've skewed significantly towards feeling over fact. Even as many bemoan that in academia and elsewhere, it doesn't seem like we can stop it. And when we do learn facts the sort of facts we learn and the, the level of depth we achieve has diminished quite a bit, I believe. Uh, I know when I was teaching college classes, there were so many times that we would have students come into the class and they could even be honor students. And these students would struggle sometimes with writing. They struggle with reading, critical thinking in the sense of actually just looking at something and evaluating it rather than just saying how they feel about it, all these sorts of things that would have been assumed as just part of the natural academic experience not that long ago. Right. And our, and our buddy, uh, Professor Cross, that we know together, he, he told me one time uh, when he was teaching his class in philosophy that he would correct the students when they would begin to share something in class and they would start a sentence with, I feel. And he would say, don't say I feel when what you mean is I think. Uh, how you feel is a secondary concern. And I've always, that's always stuck with me um, because he's carrying on that point uh, that was made by McIntyre that people who say I feel are conceding to a motivism, uh, which is the idea that um, anybody who makes a truth claim is actually trying to wield power over you, not trying to uh, discover the truth with you. Uh, so I thought it was a great point. It, it really is, which does come to this idea of actually having people compete on, on the knowledge that they're gaining in college. What's that going to look like? And will it look like what it looked like 50, 60 years ago, I, I imagine it won't. And I, I mean, I, I think they'll try to make it a serious show. I assume they're not going to just get into a match of who feels the most, I would think. But but still, I, I kind of wonder if it's going to be demoralizing if you can watch an old episode of what they were doing and then look at where we are today. It, it's, it's demoralizing in two respects, right? Because it could be demoralizing in the actual content of what the students know and can share, but it can also be demoralizing in the way that um, people are in their own ideological camps and never the twain shall meet, right? right. So hopefully uh, the word fact means something that two people even coming from different directions can share together as truth shared in common upon which agreement and fellowship and discovery can be made together, if that makes any sense. I have hope that human people can rediscover their uh, their goodness and their ability to seek truth. But we have lots of things that can challenge that for us, you know, as we've been saying. Absolutely. It's interesting, just as a sort of diversion for a moment, but it, it kind of makes me wonder if these two things are related. We, we established academia. Uh, we, we have this place of learning. And there are two things that seem like they kind of 
start to chip away at that foundation outside of the ideological degradation that's later come along. For one, I, I think it's really striking that if I say college bowl and I don't define it as this television show, I, I, I know when I first saw the lead for Dennis's piece, I immediately thought it was some kind of football game. And we don't really generally think about colleges competing on academics. We do think of them as competing on athleticism, which is something that Dennis also mentions in the piece, which is a, a weird irony, I think, that shouldn't we think first and foremost about how colleges are doing academically, not not whether they have the best football team or the best fight song or the best stadium. Right, and and that that's a bigger discussion about the university's relation to um, profit-making enterprises and things like that. Um, but also, I will say, I was a huge dork in high school, which is uh, not a surprise to anyone. Um, but I was on the quiz bowl team in high school, which was, yeah, smart people getting together and competing over who knew the most true things about whatever topics we happened to be discussing. So when I first saw College Bowl, it was a tryout for Mizzou's actual um, academic team at the wow. university. So, uh, and I didn't get very far, um, uh, even as even as sharp as I may well be, um, I didn't get very far. So, but when I heard College Bowl, yeah, I think of Super Bowl and Rose Bowl and whatever else you want to say, but I also think of those days back in quiz bowl and at the university at the tryouts. So that that's, uh, that's refreshing. Uh, certainly it's something it seems like we should emphasize more. I kind of wonder if these things go together though. If you think about it, you could pull a lot of people and they would be more upset if the university messed with their athletic schedule than if they do something that damages the academics. And if that's your overall cultural attitude, does that tie into then where we really care about feelings more than facts and care more about making people feel somehow fulfilled and affirmed in college as opposed to helping them learn things they should know? Because the whole cultural perspective isn't really aimed that direction. Right. And I want to say um, one more thing in relation. This is a piece of news. My friend, uh, the teacher and administrator, Jeremy Tate, um, had an op-ed in the New York Times along with Professor Cornell West about the death of the classics at the major universities, including the historically black colleges and universities, you know? Um, and and it was really wonderful because Jeremy was saying and, and Dr. West was saying, you know, if we lose the, if we actually lose the humanities in favor of other things, then we lose a major focus of um, what the university is supposed to be, which is a which is a much wider debate. But also, there was a response to Tate and West piece in the New York Times saying that, "Hey, you guys are exaggerating. Uh, they're still teaching the classics, but they're also teaching other things." Um, so that the response was basically. We're not losing the classics. We're not totally trashing them, but we're centering something else, which is a word you often hear, um, which will be an interesting debate to see where it goes. But we don't want to lose the foundational texts and ideas of Western culture. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, and I think that 
to me is part of the problem because it depends what you're going and saying you want out of the university. If it's to make people feel somehow important or that they've achieved certain things so that they can go do something else, if it's never about the value of actually understanding the wonder of, of the world and, and knowledge, uh, I think there can be a problem where it just sort of leads to some of the other things we see. It's, that sort of ties into the the second thing that strikes me that I wonder if it's really one of the, the core problems that we're encountering, which is that the university over the last few decades has become burdened with the idea that it's not really something you do when you want to dig into the humanities and you want to dig into philosophy, you want to grow as an academic, but rather it's the thing you do after high school if you don't want to be seen as somehow a failure. And so there's this enormous burden that you need to go to college, even for many people who have absolutely no interest in the things that college traditionally provided. And so in response, rather than saying, maybe this is the wrong idea, we've softened the curriculum and focused more on things that everyone can sink their teeth into rather than recognizing some people have different gifts. I know there's a vocational push in some quarters, but there's still this huge right. burden that college has to be the thing. And so instead of recognizing this isn't working, we just keep chipping away at traditional academic pursuits. I think they're right to make that point on on the humanities because, I mean, I watched it when I was teaching in the university where there was a constant push to get rid of the general education requirements for the humanities because we needed to focus on more quote unquote useful things. Right. And there, and there's a couple of cross cutting things that challenge the traditional notion of the university and of the liberal arts. One is the devotion, the exclusive devotion to the creation of profit, but also um, creating new inquiry that has no relation to shared truth and foundational societal needs and concerns. So if you're if you're sitting in a science that has no relation to anything real and and no relation to the community at large, then yeah, you're going to want to get rid of all this old stuff that challenges whatever you are doing which could be the pursuit of power you know, at the darkest aspects of it. Um, and then, but if we're totally lost to the pursuit of profit, because as you know, traditionally the liberal arts, there was nothing wrong with pursuing uh, pursuing livelihood, but that was secondary in the, in the traditional notion of the liberal arts. The, the original notion of the liber- liberal arts is that you would improve yourself and learn how to be a good citizen and a good person in the society in which you lived. And then if you were able to make a living in the pursuit of that, then so much the better. Um, So, but that may be a discussion for next week or maybe several podcasts in the future. I don't know. Yeah. I think we'll come back to this topic a number of times, but I think it's interesting in it. The the humanities and, and that value of the liberal arts and the intrinsic value of them, I think, also ties into the intrinsic value of life. And then we're going to get to that in, in our next segment, right after our first sponsor. Our first sponsor today, though, whether you are ready to hear about this or not, is FaithTree.com's totally revised weather service. 
That was the worst pun in human history. Well, you know, I I can't forecast the future, but there may be more bad ones ahead. <laughs> yeah, so I feel I feel clouded by your terrible puns. Ah, uh, well. Uh, that's like a lightning strike right to our point about faithtree.com weather. There are all kinds of places you can get weather. We have weather apps. We we go to different weather websites. And, and there are several things that are really annoying to me about them. The big one being they have so much advertising on them. It's hard sometimes to even see the weather in the midst of the advertising. And then one of the dark... I, I agree. And, and then there's the dark, dirty secret that those weather apps are busy tracking everywhere you go. Weather apps are some of the worst for trying to take your personal data and turn it into a product that they can sell. So that's why people should check out faithtree.com's all-new weather. It now has international weather support. It will show you a 10-day forecast, hourly weather for several days, has no advertising on it, and just as a fun little thing because it's from Faithtree, it has a scripture verse that ties into your forecast, something from scripture that has to deal with the sort of conditions outside that are going on right at that moment. So it's, it's really fun and it's a little different and it won't bombard you with ads and tracking. That is clever. I love that. I just want to know what the weather is. I don't want to be trapped in an Orwell novel. Okay, there we go. Yeah. So please everyone go and sign up for faithtree.com. Save your favorite locations you can track places that you live places that you know people in places you want to travel to and it won't be 1984 while you do it oh that sounds like segment music tim yes that brings us to our next segment which is a piece that you wrote this week jason uh, that's right, I did. Why don't you tell the world about it, Tim? Well, you took one of our very favorite topics, uh, Star Trek, and wrote about the dark underbelly of it. Uh, that title in itself just caught my attention. But you addressed something that is sort of a dirty little part of the story, which is that there does seem to be not only an acceptance, but maybe even at times a glorification of suicide. And you tie that into the optimistic atheism that that undergirds Gene Roddenberry's philosophy behind Star Trek. So maybe you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the next generation, uh, better known as TNG to the big fans, um, is my favorite show. Um, and it ran for seven years and about 180 episodes. And it is a wonderful program. And there's a reason why Star Trek just never stops spawn you know respawning itself into new series and so forth but it was the dark underbelly of of that show because Roddenberry was an atheist um but he nevertheless he believed in the relentless um forwarding of of human progress so you're like oh we're just you know the premise is in a few hundred years humanity is going to be totally without flaws and and they're going to go to the stars and they're going to find everybody else with problems. Uh, so on the good side, it, it filled lots of smart people with uh, an interesting vision and something that, you know, moved them greatly to pursue science and whatever else. Um, but, you know, there's some holes in it. And if, and if, 
it's just an atheistic philosophy, then, you know, you might say, what does it matter if, if somebody uh, were to kill themselves in a really negative, if they find themselves in a really negative spot? Um, or, or they're facing a great deal of pain or whatever. So, and you find that in several episodes of the show where a character commits suicide and there's hardly any protest from our main characters in the show that they shouldn't have done that. I think I wrote in my piece, there's only one time where commander Riker says, you know, Lieutenant Worf, you shouldn't do that because you have obligations to everyone here and your life matters. And, you know, if, if you're facing a situation and in Worf's case, it was disability, right? right? So, and that's something that I happen to know about. I don't know if our listeners know that, uh, but I have a disability and so Worf was facing a sudden disability in a spinal cord injury. And Riker was basically like, you know, you're disabled. You're not dead. Suck it up, buttercup. Uh, you know, uh, and and that was the only, you know, among several examples in the show, that was the only time that a suicide was ever protested against or maybe thought that it wasn't a good idea. Uh, and we could go through some more of the examples if you want to uh, from the piece. But, uh, yeah, I just, just wanted to throw it out there as if, as if we're Christians especially, you know, and, we're, and we believe in heaven. And we believe w- uh, that every human destiny is in communion with God. Then suicide is not consistent with that. Uh, and so that's going to challenge us even as we... Uh, you know, try to find the gospel in the stories of Star Trek and find the gospel in the character uh, relationships with one another. Uh, but suicide is not consistent with any of that. So uh, that's that's a really unique problem. And it's something that is painful to deal with as a fan of the show, you know. Yeah. yeah it's interesting how I think the show obviously had a philosophical basis from Roddenberry, but at any point, and certainly once Roddenberry is no longer involved with the show, you can see it kind of having to buck against that to an extent because it's really hard to live within the framework that Roddenberry wanted the show to be within. And you you can see that in an episode like the one with Riker and Worf discussing suicide, an optimistic atheism that's basically looking at people as widgets that can produce something. And once you no longer meet a certain value level, I I guess you can argue that the optimism ends and the person isn't useful. And that's sort of what Worf is feeling, right? He he doesn't feel like he's going to be quote unquote useful any longer. His life's over. And, And it's so refreshing that Riker interjects against that. But in that he seems to be arguing against something that I think Roddenberry would struggle with. Right. And that's right. And and I noted in the piece that, you know, Roddenberry had this stricture that none of his main characters would ever conflict with each other, which makes it really hard to tell stories. So anyway, you know, as Gene got sicker, uh, the 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 leaders of the show had to take over more of the creative energy. And I think you'll find and you'll note from other series of Star Trek that that you like even more than TNG, that the series got better when they when they 
took off that relentless optimism for a, a certain dose of realism. Uh, but uh, yeah, I like the fact that it had gotten late enough in the show that that maybe Gene's objections to Worf's to Riker's objections were overridden by the need of the story. The other person in that episode, and it's called Ethics, um, and I believe it's in the fifth season, and I think it's the 16th episode of the show of that season. Um, but the other person who raises a protest against Worf's little suicide-centered pity party was Deanna Troy, because he's got Worf's got a son named Alexander that he doesn't even want to see because he doesn't want Alexander to see him in a vulnerable state. And so she's like, that's your son, and you have an obligation to that son, and your own pride is secondary to the obligations that you have to Alexander. Um, and it's a great episode. It's called Ethics, and there's a really good sub-story as well that relates to uh, medical risk and euthanasia and all kinds of things. So check it out. It's a great episode. But again, that undercurrent of, of suicide and of using people for other ends is still there in much of the show. So that's what my piece was about. And glad we could talk about it and bring it up here. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because I, I was aware of some of these episodes. And, and I've, I mean, I watched all the way through TNG over the years, but I don't think I'd really thought about it as a theme like you brought out. And I, I think it's helpful. I'm a huge Star Trek fan, but I think it is helpful to question some of those philosophical underpinnings that aren't helpful in it. Uh, because I, I, I think there's a lot to aspire to in what we see the depiction of a future Earth and, and universe-like. But there's also a lot that we should be cautious about. And I think we can see some of those philosophical underpinnings playing out in our society today in ways that aren't really leading to the future that Roddenberry imagines, uh, which th this is one of the reasons you, you have to watch Deep Space Nine sometime, comrade, uh, because Deep Space Nine basically does what I'm saying. It, it looks at this this universe that's been created in, in Star Trek and says, let's actually peel it back and look at what is really happening. Can it really be as good as it appears? There's two a two-part series in season four where Captain Sisko is sent back to Earth to deal with a possible threat of an alien invasion. In that, it's not really all that different from many past Star Trek episodes. It's a picture of Starfleet against the world outside of the Federation. But it takes a really interesting twist because the big conflict in it is between Sisko and a former mentor and hero of his who is willing to give away the freedoms of Earth for the sake of protecting quote-unquote paradise. That this utopia that we've been told exists in the Federation where everything is good and everyone gets along isn't really as simple as depicted throughout Star Trek, that, that it can actually be lost and that it could be at least somewhat a facade, that there are people behind it that feel the need to misinform the members of Paradise on what's really going on for the sake of protecting what they think is so precious about it. 
We see lots and lots of conflict in the chain of command of Starfleet in this episode, the sort of thing Roddenberry wanted to avoid, but in it, I think, a much more realistic depiction of who we really are as human beings. We are people who struggle, and we try to do good, but oftentimes we justify the worst of things in ourselves looking at what's so bad on the outside. It's more realistic, I think, than some of the earlier episodes of Star Trek because of that. And in it, I think it also offers hope, because we see flawed people, compromised people, confused people willing to take action and to seek to do what's right. And that's really what we're stuck trying to sort through as we seek to do what God's called us to do, because we we are deeply flawed individuals, and, and no amount of progress over the next few hundred years is going to erase that. You, you get... Um, and I have started Deep Space Nine, but I haven't gotten yes. very far. So, um, and and you know, it's it's my tendency not to be able to watch things in order, which has challenged me in finishing series up to this point. But what I want to say is, you'll see that dark realism in lots of the films um, after the Next Generation that have taken place, like Insurrection. Even was that 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 film about rescuing the the poor people on that planet, they were going to be relocated. And so the Federation has this suicide, suicide has this facade of optimism that uh, when you dig down deep, you got corrupt officials, you got all that whole thing. Um, and, and I like in a sense that Star Trek is more realistic in that sense. Um, so, so I agree with you. And I also want to say that, you know, when, when you're a Christian and you love Star Trek, then it's going to be more like, at some level, it's going to be like gospel Trek. It's going to be like, all right, uh, where can I find uh, the good of the gospel in this, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I think by expressing some of the human needs and struggles and and the emptiness it feels for example when characters commit suicide and it just seems like oh okay that's the end of that person it it leaves us yearning for something more and, and again that's why i think once you get through it you'll love deep space nine because there is a sense and and one of the major characters major kira uh, pun not intended is is a very spiritual person uh she follows the bajoran religion she's a bajoran uh, she gives a really good defense over the series of why faith matters and how it contributes hope in the face of otherwise this materialistic universe where where the story just ends whenever someone either decides to shut off their life by killing themselves or you know some freak accident happens and all the optimism just goes down the drain because you're dead. Right, and I think I think one of the glorious things about her as a character is that she has two sides of herself. You know, she has that that faith side that hopes, that never stops hoping, and she encourages the other characters to see that. And then she has that very cynical side, you know, especially in that very first episode of Deep Space Nine, yes. Emissary, where where Cisco comes and and he's the Federation, and he says he's only there trying to help, and she says... You know, the Cardassians said the same thing when they took us over, you know. Uh, and I will say, let me just put another plug in for Star Trek and for the politics of Star Trek. 
the Cardassian storylines that are throughout several of the series are brilliant. They're absolutely brilliant, and they're so interesting. So uh, the 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 wrestling between the Bajoran Bajorans, the Cardassians, and whoever else is caught in the middle is just genius, and it's interesting. Um, and it, it's interesting on the level of human rights and dignity. Um, if we can take it out of the sphere of aliens and, and put it where it belongs on, on human dignity and that sort of thing. Yes. So yes, I'm, I'm going to finish deep space nine. I'm going to religiously watch pardon the pun, all the other series all the way through to the end. Uh, and we'll we'll go from there, comrade. Yeah, well, we'll have to come back to Star Trek in a future episode. I will just say, for those who are listening to us and saying, well, it gets darker, maybe I don't want to watch the later series, I actually find that a hopeful element, because in the darkness, it also re- wrestles with some of these deeper issues that we face as human beings, the dignity you mentioned, and the idea that maybe there's something more. And so I just encourage our listeners to go ahead and give it a try as well. And then we can pick back up and talk about it some more in a future episode. So let's just talk about the gospel for a second. Um, I think, you know, I've been blogging through the gospel of John, um, as we talked about in the last episode. And, you know, wouldn't you know it, um, after Jesus is done uh, doing a bunch of signs, uh, which are miracles, which point toward God's intent to, to redeem humanity, then, you know, I have the book divided between the, the book of signs and the book of glory. And the book of glory means the cross. And uh, even though that doesn't seem glorious at first blush, obviously, um, but the, the glory of Christ is the cross, which also implies the resurrection. Uh, but, you know, there, there's such a strong temptation for ministers of the gospel, um, especially if people start from a place of struggling, to say, oh, well, here's the gospel and your life is going to be so much better. And what you do if you push that too far is you lose the cross. Um, And Jesus without the cross is not somebody that uh, you necessarily want to follow because what is Jesus without his cross and resurrection? And so you find, uh, even though you and I might have debates about the nature of the atonement itself, and we could go on and on for hours about that, we, as those who have spent our lives proclaiming the gospel, know that the message of Jesus is tied up in the cross and in the resurrection. And we're going we're gonna to make our common cause with anyone who wants to proclaim the cross. And so th- that got me thinking because a friend of mine sent me a book from a very bold preacher of, of the gospel uh, from decades past, Fulton Sheen, Archbishop Fulton Sheen. He was uh, he was an archbishop in the Catholic Church. Uh, he served as the Archbishop of Los Angeles. He served as an archbishop in New York for a time. 
he was friends with Reverend Billy Graham. You know, he was a very famous preacher of the gospel um, in, in ages past in America and even around the world. Uh, and Bishop Sheen, you know, he starts his, his book, The Life of Christ, which is what my friend sent me, saying that if we lose the cross, then, then we have nothing. Um, and I always love that. And I also love the fact that, you know, if you watch a, a video from Bishop Sheen, He's saying, he's saying essentially what any good preacher of the gospel will say is if I don't tell you the extent of the problem, if I'm not honest with you about what your problem is, what our problem is, that we're sinners, then we don't need the cross. But we need the cross because we're sinners. <laughs> and Yes. And a guy that has the guts to tell the truth about that is somebody that you want to be following. And somebody who doesn't have the guts to tell the truth about that, you want to just you want to just go the other way, to be quite honest about it. So Absolutely. to bring it back to the to to bring it back to the gospel of John, uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem, which means everything that's gonna happen for that next week is leading up to the cross and to the resurrection. Uh, so that's where we are in the gospel of John. And we want to celebrate and, and honor those, including you comrade, who are bold enough to preach the cross and its necessity in for us, for our salvation. Um, so I wonder if you wanted to say any cut in right there and say anything. What you were saying about recognizing the sin that we have, the need that we have for the cross, the suffering that exists in the world, these things are unavoidable. Uh, I, I remember a, a, a pastor I knew who wasn't necessarily particularly bold once said to me, though, that total depravity is the only theological truth he thought was demonstrable from experience. And, and without getting into the technical aspects of that, I think he had a point, in, to an extent at least, that you look into the world and you look in your own self and you realize that I don't always do what's right. I don't live in a world that's right. And when we actually can admit that and then admit that we need someone who can rescue us from that, and when we have bold preachers who are willing to confront us with that, I think actually, instead of being a depressing thing, is an encouraging thing because then we can start talking about solution when all you, when you're trying to pretend everything's great and we can just rise above it and have this optimistic materialistic world is optimistic as in theory, it sounds, it's not really very encouraging, but when we can actually look at the cross and see what Jesus did and, and we can be truthful with ourselves that this is something that we need, then we can actually have a genuine optimism that comes from receiving an antidote to the illness that we have. Yeah, and because and and the truth of it is that forgiveness in a way it is the expression of the power of our dignity because if we can be forgiven that means that our need and our sinfulness is not the end of the story. The end of the story is where our destiny lies. Right. And 
And if we're going to be with God, if we're going to be with God forever in communion with God, then forgiveness will have come in between where we are now and where we hope to be. Um, you know, because I don't know about you, but I don't know too many people that don't need forgiveness. In fact, at least here on earth, I don't know any. So um, the, the need for forgiveness or the reality of being a sinner is not the worst news. The worst news would be I'm a sinner and I'm broken and there's nothing that can help me. That would be depressing news. Absolutely. <laughs> the, the fact, you know, the fact that I'm a sinner and God still loves me. That's good news. Right. Yes. Because, <laughs> because, you know, it says in Romans, um, Romans 5, 8, for God shows his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, which means he didn't wait around for us to pretty ourselves up and make ourselves okay. He saw exactly how bad we are, we were and said, okay, I'll die for that. I'll die for that person. I will give my life for that person. Um, so if we can admit how bad we are, then in that sense, we're agreeing with Jesus and if we're agreeing with Jesus in how bad we are, we can agree with Jesus in the goodness of our lives, which he died to redeem. Right. Yes. Yeah. It's it's funny that when we actually admit the problem that we have and our need for, for the forgiveness that only Jesus can offer us, that suddenly it doesn't degrade our value. It doesn't degrade the value of the people around us. It then speaks to we're coming right back to where we started today, the intrinsic value of lives. And that's an intrinsic value that I, I, I think argues for the exploration of the world that God has created. And that's where the liberal arts we were talking about makes sense. It's where the, there's a profound tragedy in suicide in that someone evaluates their own life and doesn't see the value that God sees in that person's life. And a tragedy, if we affirm that it's a good idea for someone to do that, because we're basically saying we don't see the value in someone else that God has placed in that person. All these things tie together, and the cross holds it all together in that we see a, a God who can both look at us and say, you guys are so messed up that it's, it takes the ultimate sacrifice. It takes the son of God himself, God incarnate dying and triumphing over death to save us. But that's worthwhile because God actually sees us as those worth redeeming. Right. That's right. Um, and we have, you know, and sacrifice doesn't um, just have in our world, uh, spiritual and religious connotations. We know of people making sacrifices for all sorts of things, but but the the only trouble troubling tendency is when we read of sacrifices that people make on behalf of others, we read it backwards and we don't recognize the greater sacrifice as illuminating the love that all sacrifice embodies. 
you know, right. Jesus himself said, greater man, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And we know soldiers, we know mothers, we know teachers, counselors, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, who every day sacrifice parts of themselves, if not their very lives, for others. Um, and there's a nobility in that. Living for others ultimately is better than living for oneself. Right. That is also the lesson of the cross, because if uh, Jesus had all manner of privileges, and he said, rather than embrace the privileges which I had with the Father from the very beginning, I'm going to set those aside and redeem these people, which, you know, definitely Satan, the accuser of the brethren, as as St. John would have it, uh, Satan doesn't see our value. All he does is tell us how horrible we are and no one would love us and might as well come hang out with him because we're not worth much more than that. And God says, no, as bad as you have been and as bad a way as you have been in, I'll take you all the way from where you are to where I want you to be, which is with me. Amen. I, I can't say that any better. That's a, a wonderful place. I think we're actually going to have to conclude here in a moment because we are running out of time. How about this? Why don't we go ahead and talk about our last, last sponsor, which is Open for Business. And I'll mention this in the context that if people are enjoying what we're talking about and want to hear more of it, Jason and I both are writing on Open for Business every week. We have our colleague Dennis that's writing his writing there as well. It's a joy to get to collaborate with, with Dennis and with Jason as we wrestle with things and have some fun too. We And of course, me being the tech geek, I also review some technology. So people should check out Open for Business between episodes of Zippy the Wonder Snail for further edification and amusement and they want something else to look up online. So they should just go there for that too. Just something to do online, right? There's nothing else to do online. You should go to open for business. <laughs> it's the only website on the internet. Didn't you know that? Yeah, yeah pretty much so. Uh, if they haven't realized that yet, that's because they're looking at pale imitators. I agree. I do thank everyone for joining us today. It was a great time with you once again, comrade. And I'd remind everyone they should subscribe to us on their favorite podcasting service so they can zip into the latest episode of Zippy the Wonder Snail every time as soon as it comes out. That is change I can believe yeah. in. And, of course, also visit us on the web at zippythewondersnail.com, the best website other than Open for Business on the web. And, of course, it's on Open for Business, so it basically is just the best website on the web. Uh, once again, thank you for joining us today. It's been a joy to be with you. And we will look forward to having you join us again next time on Zippy the Wonder Snail.